0: Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.
1: Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Bierstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and US foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org.
2: In each episode of International History Declassified,
1: Peter and I will sit down with
2: historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today.
1: Rudy Duan is a PhD candidate in history at Harvard University. Her research interests include the global Cold War, decolonization, and comparative race and ethnicity. Rudy's dissertation traces the discourses and networks of Afro-Asianism through the 1960s and 1970s, when anti-colonial nationalist leaders and transnational activists alike maintained the conviction that the past and the future of Africa and Asia were entwined. Rudy, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh great. So uh you know, as I mentioned, your your back your research and your background is is something that that jumped out at us. Uh this intersection of uh Chinese Cold War history with the civil rights movement in America is is a, a topic that is uh, in in my opinion not uh, has not fully been flushed out yet, and I, I I would imagine that you're you're doing some of the cutting edge research in the field, um, especially in terms of um, you know working with archives, not just looking at sort of high level diplomatic cables and exchanges, but looking at more of a social history. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this project? What what interested you in 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 this topic, and 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 how you've gone about uh,
0: researching it? Yeah, so my interest in this, in in these exchanges between Maoism and Chinese socialism and the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement in the United States, um, started with my senior thesis as a college student, um, because I, so my undergraduate degree, my undergraduate training was in Black Studies, um, and it's, it was taking a very diasporic look, um, at, um, African and African-American history and politics. And I really wanted, because there was a article that had caught my eye. It's, it's widely accessible right now. It's Robin Kelly's Black Like Mao, um, Red China and Black Revolution. And, it was an article that really, I, I, I believe it's one of the first works out there since it was written in the nineties um, that's looking at this 1960s, 1970s phenomenon of the interface between Maoism um, and black radicalism. And I felt like that article offered a number of leads in terms of questions that are still unexplored and um, And so with my senior thesis in college, I looked at the Black Panther Party. Um, So using primarily uh, English language sources, looking at the exchanges between the Black Panther Party ideologically um, with Maoism in the late 60s um, and early 70s. And when I got to graduate school, I really wanted to broaden the scope of this project because. I feel like there. I felt like there was a bigger story here, um, in terms of global Maoism and the comparative makings of race and ethnicity, and how how these debates about race and class and nationalism were very much a part of the global uh, of the global Cold War. And so I bettered my Chinese language skills. Um, I started. And going to China, I went um, repeatedly throughout my first two years in graduate school to try and get into the archives. This is another story there. It's really <laughs> difficult. I'm sure we'll get into it more <laughs> um, later on, but I was able to have um, some success in the Shanghai Municipal Archives, and I know other scholars who do post-1949 Chinese history have had similarly um, positive experiences with the archives in Shanghai. And I was able to find what was super interesting to me, all of these records um, of visits by all kinds of foreign dignitaries and and activists, uh, including Robert Williams and the records from his 1963 and 1964 um, visits to China. And, from there I was also able to kind of connect the dots between his visits and a number of kind of public rallies and the documentation the the draft speeches from those rallies are also um or maybe were also (laughs) in the archives in Shanghai and those those proceedings um, would consist of all these Chinese representatives from labor unions and student organizations and women's associations who would just speak in support um, of the African American struggle against racial discrimination. There are some really interesting um, themes that emerged um, in their speeches, like. Temporally, they really considered there to be a connection between the Chinese Revolution of the 1920s, 1930s, into the 1940s, and the Civil Rights Movement in the United States in the 1960s.
2: Um, let, let's let's go into um, no. Let's let's go into the the Robert Williams. Um... Uh, trip. That's actually something that you've written about uh, before. And I'm curious if you could give us a little bit of context to uh, the trip on both sides, both the the, um, Robert Williams side and and the Chinese side.
0: Yeah. um, So I think the story of Robert Williams and China is a really good lens in which to understand these interactions between Black nationalism, Black power, and China in the 1960s. So just a bit of a pretext, Robert Williams was a um, North Carolina-based NAACP leader who had been very prominent in a number of anti-segregation campaigns in Monroe, North Carolina in the 1950s. And he turned to armed self-defense more in the early 1960s. He published this widely read book back then called Negroes with Guns. And ultimately he ended up being exiled in Cuba. And it was while living in Havana in the early 1960s that he first visited China in 1963 and 1964. And what's really interesting and, and, and very much a part of the Cold War context Was the fact that he had that Williams had become very much disillusioned by that point with the Cuban stance on racial nationalism and race in general? Because Williams had first gone to Cuba being very optimistic about Fidel Castro's claims to have eliminated racism in Cuba and how Afro Cubans were on equal status um with with everyone else in the country, because socialism has allowed us to overcome these racial divides. Um, but he felt like Cuban authorities really surveilled him when it when it came to decisions to say, broadcast more black nationalist music on the mm-hmm. airwaves. Um, he felt like their claims to have, overcome racism were exaggerated and at the same time because maoist rhetoric in the aftermath of the sino-soviet split also really drew really emphasized race as this point of um as something that distinguished them from the soviets right they were more progressive when it came to anti-imperialism mm-hmm. to race they mm-hmm. were on the side of the Afro-Asian nations, the third world. And I think that's what made Robert Williams really turn politically from Cuba, which he thought was kind of in cahoots with the Soviet Union and too dependent on Soviet aid to really um, stand its own in international affairs from there to Beijing. And what he saw when he was in China, right? He was taken to all of these model factories and model schools. And what's also very interesting is that he was taken to um, these uh, territories where Chinese ethnic minorities lived. And he was able, he was able to, and this is definitely facilitated with the intention of. Chinese authorities to draw this equation between um, ethnic harmony in socialist China or perceived ethnic harmony and its stance on racial equality
2: right did did he uh find this kind of cynical at all i mean did he did he sort of see the, that that um, maybe the the Chinese were trying to kind of use him to get at the American government or something like that? Um, Or did he kind of really believe in the message that they were um, uh, kind of promoting to him?
0: I think he definitely wanted to believe in the message that they were Mm -hmm. promoting. And it's reading more deeply into the records of their exchanges that are from the Chinese archives that you see that there are these moments of disagreement that really arise. And they all generally have to do with the role of race and class struggle. The supremacy of class struggle over other forms of division and, and 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 for example robert williams was pretty um pretty supportive of the nation of islam and mm. w- w- which was a black nationalist organization and in his conversations with Chinese officials who would be accompanying him on these tours, when he mentioned the nation of Islam positively, um, they would try to kind of talk back at him about how it's all about the class struggle, um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's separatist. And then later you would see in the notes, they would write that, The Chinese authorities who were in charge of taking these notes would write things like, actually, we noticed that when Robert Williams comes to Beijing, he doesn't interact with the other white American communists who were in China. And and, and there was a small but significant community um, of people like Anna-Louise Strong and Sidney Rittenberg. Um, so, So they were suspicious that Robert Williams was more Black nationalist in his political beliefs than he was socialist or Maoist. So I think you see these inklings of disagreement, and they're always there. But I think because China really offered Williams this platform, right, they gave him resources. And a media platform, they helped publish the Crusader in tens of thousands of copies with his newsletter. They helped him radio cast his program, um, Radio Free Dixie. So I I think because Robert Williams received so many of these material benefits, given his connection to Beijing, it's, it's hard to speak out otherwise.
1: That's that's fascinating, and could could we sort of expand on that? Continuing on here, uh, what do you think uh, was the objective, the goal, not only of 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 Robert Williams, but also of the of the Chinese uh, government in collaborating and in supporting uh, financially and, and materially his 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 effort? Was was this uh, aimed at the U.S. civil rights movement? Was it a, a broader uh, aim of of sort of an, an international Afro-Asian uh, solidarity movement? Uh, how do you, what do you perceive as as the target audience for, for the work that he was doing?
0: Yeah, I think this was a part of a larger Chinese campaign in the 1960s in the aftermath of the Sino-Soviet split to really make this argument that China was the rightful leader of third world countries, not the Soviet Union, because China had experienced semi-colonialism in the past. It had experienced it, it had experienced racism and imperialism, and was able to figure out in a very tried and true fashion that class struggle and class revolution was the only legitimate path forward, and so they're trying to make the claim that we are sensitive to this, Moscow is not. And and I think its stance on Black power and Black nationalism in the United States was very much a platform on which they could try and prove that. And so internationally, I think so, so I think it was both a domestic and international campaign to assert itself as a legitimate challenger to the Soviet union for leadership of the mm-hmm. third world on the grounds of sensitivities and understandings of race and racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, um, kind of zooming out there, um, now uh, I, I know your your focus a lot is on on kind of post Bandung. So this this all kind of comes into their attempts at sort of um, the the Chinese government to to kind of expand this anti colonial international movement and kind of connect people. Um, do you think that they were successful in that? I mean, do you think that they were able to to sort of incorporate the the African American left into this kind of broader um, kind of community of of anti colonial movements, or do you think that? Um, they provided some some help, and and um, Williams came on the trip, but it didn't really expand beyond that.
0: I think this is a complicated question with a complicated answer because they were somewhat successful in that by the late nineteen sixties, a significant portion, a minority, but still a significant portion of African American radicals had really begun to look to Maoism and its theory of guerrilla warfare, revolutionary struggle in their own political activities. But in a way that China didn't really expect, because if you read deeply into the Chinese outreach efforts to African-Americans, they really rely on this discourse of race uh, of uh, resolving the racial problem vis a vis the class struggle, but at the same time, what really drew Black Power radicals in the late 1960s to China, not just Robert Williams, but people like Huey Newton and Elaine Brown from the Black Panther Party. Um, and 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 other folks in the mid-1960s, like Malcolm X, it was not so much the language of class struggle, right? Um, it was the racial nationalist appeal of China and the Cultural Revolution and the fact that they were able to stake their own as a non-white country in the international arena. It was the fact that the Cultural Revolution suggested a kind of, cultural nationalist development of arts and politics in a way that was independent of western influences and and, and so i think it had it, it was successful in that there was an appeal there were these connections that were made and well received but why those connections were established i think were also not exactly how um, Chinese, the Chinese leadership really intended it to.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. And, and I, I do, I, you know, for, for these types of tales, like I, like I said, you know, we, we've, uh, our program has focused a lot on, on international history, diplomatic history, higher level stuff. Uh, but increasingly I think dialing down and then focusing on some more of these social aspects of, of what was going on is, is really illuminating and it helps us uh, provides us with a much clearer picture of, um what was what was happening in, in China, what the aspirations and the goals of, of the Chinese government were uh, vis-a-vis this uh during the time. Um if we can just shift a little bit now to uh to talk a bit about your 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 methods. Um one of the things that mm-hmm. Kian and I are always super interested in is is uh, it's a bit of a cliched phrase, but we we we're interested in in how the sausage is made. We're interested in the process. Um, you know what goes into the research. Can you talk a, a little bit about your experience in 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 the Chinese archives? Uh, you mentioned the the Shanghai uh, uh, municipal archives, uh, Beijing as well. Um, some you know difficulties getting access. What what uh, sort of sources are available on this on the subject? In China, um, outside of China, how did you how did you gather your evidence to to paint this picture?
0: Yeah, so in terms of archives in China, it, it is very limited. So I mentioned the Shanghai Municipal Archives is essentially one of the only repositories that's pretty open. Um, I I really don't know what's happened since the pandemic, um, (laughs) though, and what what things are going to look like after this, right? Um, But at least in the past, it's been one of the only repositories that's been pretty open to Western researchers. And sadly, the foreign ministry archives were open for quite open for a number of years. But since... 2012. So many more documents have become reclassified, and so I think then, like a lot of other people who do research on post-1949 history, there's this need, right, to look beyond the archives. And for my for my own work, what's been really helpful are it is being able to get to just via like old fashioned Chinese search engines and um, websites like there, there's a website there's a website that sells used Chinese books called Kung Fu and whenever I'm in China I would try and buy like old copies of newspapers and old political ephemera um, that people had collected decades ago and are now just selling them as historical uh, relics as historical relics so there would be song records um old plays scripts um all Hmm. kinds of things posters that are now available on the site and so I would just kind of you, you can't really you can't ship overseas so I would just take advantage of whenever I'm in China to just mine um what's being sold on the website for things that might be helpful um So my dissertation is not only about um, this connection between Maoism and Black nationalism in the United States. I'm also interested in the overlapping networks of Pan-Africanism and Afro-Asianism in the 1960s. And so a big part of my research is also based in Tanzania, which was very close Mm -hmm. to China throughout the 1960s and 1970s, and still so today. And, and and what I've noticed is that kind of taking a step back, even though there's a lot of conversation about how limited the archival trail, the paper trail is in terms of post-1949 Chinese history, it allowed me to maintain perspective to have experienced that Tanzanian archives are far more limited because (laughs) as another post-socialist country with a lot of political sensitivities in terms of um, its governance, its record of governance during the Cold War, there's the same issue with documents, with whatever documents that are available being subject to strict surveillance. and hence inaccessible to Western researchers. We're all researchers. And then there's the added problem that in terms of archival maintenance, a lot of the documentation just isn't organized or or isn't available. Um, And so because I encountered a lot more struggle in Tanzania, sometimes like when I went into the archives in China, it it felt so good to have like a search engine (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: it's it's also it's good to have perspective for sure
0: (laughs) so i think the good thing about doing um very globally grounded research is that you do get perspective when it comes to things like archival access
1: it makes you appreciate certain archives perhaps more than uh more than you you thought you initially would um i i've experienced that myself a couple of times but
2: so, so how do you get around that then? So if, if you want to get the Tanzanian perspective, but maybe the, the articles, the, the documents aren't immediately available or available at all, um, how, how do you get that perspective anyway? Is there, is there any way? I mean, are you interviewing people? Are there other um, nations that kind of interacted with Tanzania that you're able to access those archives? Um,
0: yeah, there's a lot of historical newspapers that are available. Mm-hmm. Um, also, old newsletters political ephemera thinks that uh, I I think there was more of a civil society in 1960s Tanzania than in China, in terms of the records of things that people said. Um, So Hmm. that's, so so in terms of accessing materials in that regard, it it, it is easier. And then you have the fact that um, the British intelligence was, Continued to be pretty involved in Tanzania throughout the 1960s and 1970s, keeping tabs on everything in terms of the Chinese presence, um, military and economic aid to the country. And so like plenty of other diplomatic historians, um, the colonial and post-colonial archives have been a really big resource and also the U S intelligence, right? So like within the United States, there's a lot of repositories that have been super helpful. Um, and I do, I haven't done formal interviews, but just talking to people um, informally, I think like older people who have memories of the era has been really good for me in terms of, Getting down a sense of the political atmosphere. Um, and also just experiencing it personally, right? As a um, young Chinese American person in Tanzania, I, I get a lot of messages that I think help me better understand how everyday people um, in Tanzania understand. Chinese presence in the country then and now. So just locally, I, I think um, informally, it's been really good to get that sense.
1: Interesting. Well, can,
2: can I ask um, what the Tanzanian perspective on um, China was? I mean, what, what was at the core of that relationship and, and sort of um, how did your kind of experiences in the Tanzanian archives kind of develop that thinking? and And how did it play into your personal kind of experience working in those archives? I mean, as a Chinese American woman, did you did it kind of um, make it a more visceral experience? Did it did you know what did you kind of um, find there that that uh, characterized your experience?
0: Yeah. Um, so I think there are there were many parallels in the relationship between China and Tanzania and between China and black nationalist activists in the United States in that what really stood out to Tanzania about China and Chinese development and Chinese aid was this core message of very nationalist self-reliance, right, this rhetoric of independence from the West, um, the sense of an alternative path to modernity and, an alternative model of international organization and international society. Um, And at the same time, China's appeals to race in forums like the um, Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization. There was a big conference in Moshi, Tanzania in 1963, and the Chinese delegates um, very much emphasized their race rhetoric to prove that they were superior in terms of their outreach, the third world to to the Soviets, and that was somewhat well-received. And and so I think there are many parallels in this story, plus the fact that um, some of the most outspoken advocates of Pan-Africanism, so people like Robert Williams, and Abdul Rahman Mohammed Babu, who was a Zanzibari Marxist and nationalist in the 1960s. These were the people who within Tanzania, um, what Robert Williams would be within the United States and this larger network of Pan-Africanism, but these were the people who most advocated for some, some vision of Afro-Asian solidarity and friendship with the Chinese government. Um, so, so I think what I found really interesting are kind of these unexpected parallels and personally, in terms of doing research and what I found is that I think it really helped because there were some people who had good memories of the Chinese presence in Tanzania from the Cold War era of these Chinese funded large scale projects, like, like factories and mills, and the railroad that connected Zambia and Tanzania that was built in the 1970s, is that it helped to present as Chinese, even if that hadn't been my intention, or something that I was um, super aware of, is that when I was trying to get access into the archives, I think if I didn't just like present a U.S. passport. (laughs) Well,
2: I I like to talk about the the resourcefulness of of scholars and getting research done. So it helps to utilize every tool in your belt, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so it helps to present as Chinese and to maybe meet, someone at the door who's like, oh, I love China. (laughs) Oh, me too. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And and then just completely bypass the process Mm -hmm. in which I would have to make clear that I'm from an American um, university and that I'm a U.S. citizen. I I don't think those things would have helped me very much.
1: Uh, But obviously, there was a a rather large and widespread uh, domestic surveillance uh, campaign run by uh, law enforcement, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, Mm -hmm. on... uh, Black nationalist parties in w- within the U.S. and and um, perhaps uh, their contacts and 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 stretches uh, outside of uh, outside of the the borders here and in other countries uh, is that is that something that you've uh, you've taken a look at or, or uh, have interest in? Yeah,
0: i have taking a look at it a bit, definitely in terms of FBI records on black power radicals from the late 1960s. Um, a lot of that is freely accessible. Um, and I found that they could be a good fact-based reference, but I still find it easier in terms of my writing and the building of a narrative to base more of um, my observations on like the records that are left in terms of memoirs and documents by the activists who were involved and then cross-check that with um, the materials from archives and other sources within China. So factually, I think it's good to have that as a resource, but I think because of the way that activity, uh, and, and because of the obvious bias, right, that's <laughs> built into those records, um, I, I think it's hard to really build a narrative um from FBI records.
1: That's that's fair and it makes makes a great deal of sense. Obviously, yes, they they can be uh uh, a bit politicized as we saw back in, in the 60s and, and perhaps some contemporary examples as well. Uh, so using that as a, as a touchstone as opposed to a, 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 sole, source, a sole source of information is-, is, is Well, not entirely. not
0: that Chinese records from that time were not- <laughs>
1: I'm not saying anything is- comprehend. No, of course, biased. of course.
0: <laughs> so, so I think it's good to have all of these, all of these sources available and to not exclusively base my conclusions on any one sort of documentation.
1: That, that makes a great deal, of, great deal of sense to me. Um, I'm going to sort of wrap things up here with one final question we like to uh, to ask all of our guests. Um, is there a particular uh, document that you've come across in your archival research, or set of documents, or um, you know, interview that you've you've done during your research that has um, surprised you or, or changed your, your 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 you know preconceived notion about something, or or shifted your thinking uh, on 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 this topic? Uh, have you have you encountered anything like that in your in your studies and research?
0: Well, one thing I've noted just reading through Chinese newspapers, um, historical Chinese newspapers lately is, and and this has definitely broadened my thinking about this question of race and Maoism and class struggle, um, is noticing that around the early 1970s, sometimes there was this on the Chinese side, this slippage of race and ethnic categorizations. Um, so because China is also multi-ethnic and it has, and in fact, the majority of Chinese territory, um, m- much of it is home to these territorially very big, so places like Xinjiang and Tibet these autonomous um, territories for ethnic minorities. I I think there was a tendency at that time to equate African-Americans in the United States to a ethnic minority in the Chinese sense. So there was kind of a collapse of terms and it resulted in a lot of, I think, contradictions. Because on the one hand they wanted to regard African Americans as the revolutionary vanguard who were going to help lead a a, a a very militant remaking of U.S. society, but on the other hand, they that, that there was also this impulse to understand them, uh, understand African Americans as alongside kind of Puerto Ricans and Chicanos and Native Americans as one part of a multi-ethnic whole and I think it was seeing this this unintentional slippage of understandings between race and ethnicity that I was able to understand more why it seemed like Maoism had such a at times conflicting contradictory understanding of Black nationalism because I think in terms of just minority nationalism. And and this is a question Hmm. that I think has some throwback to how the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s once entertained um, what they called the Negro question, right? And how they at one point pushed for this Black Belt thesis of how the Southern states would constitute a Black Republic, Um, so I think there's 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 definitely some reverberations there, and and it's made me it's allowed me to better understand this very nuanced working of race and ethnicity and class when it came to this bigger question of minority nationalism in the Cold War.
2: Absolutely, I mean it's certainly a subject that that deserves some um, uh, some serious time and and kind of research and writing because it just continues to get more and more relevant today as as. Um... Um, you know, current events continue to develop. So, um, it's a really fascinating question. Um, Rudy, it was really great talking to you and learning a little bit more about your work. Uh, I really look forward to, to kind of, um, you know, seeing what, what other publications you come through with and, and, um, uh, hopefully working together with you again, uh, soon.
0: Of course. Thank you for having me. It helps to verbalize, I
2: think, <laughs> sometimes <Yeah.
0: laughs> when you're just kind of, knee-deep in the writing it helps to have the opportunity to verbalize these thoughts
1: (laughs) (laughs) as always you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org we'd like to thank graham norwood for this podcast's music you've been listening to international history declassified a
2: podcast focused on history historians their sources and their methods
0: International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.